This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. You'll find more information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website, churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Church Society podcast. My name is George Crowder and I'm one of the staff team. I'm the regional director for the Northern Area. Well, in this podcast, I'm going to talk about church revitalisation. I think this is an important subject and that's not least because it has actually been my ministry for the last 10 years. But more recently, in my role as regional director for Church Society, I have been meeting more and more ministers who are engaged in this kind of ministry. And it's really exciting what God is doing, calling people uh, to do church revitalisation. And so because of this, at Church Society, we we ran a webinar earlier this year and we'll be running another one soon on Wednesday the 10th of November at one o'clock. Now, this podcast is a repeat of my talk in the first webinar, which sets out a vision for revitalisation in the Church of England. If you're not involved in church revitalisation, I hope this will help you understand why some of us are and equip you to pray for us and to support us. If you are in a church revitalisation situation, I hope to encourage you with a wider vision for this ministry. I found inspiration in Jeremiah 32, which might seem an unusual place to start, but I think it gives an amazing perspective on how God works. Let me set the scene. As the door opened and the guards parted, Jeremiah lifted his eyes on an unlikely but not unexpected visitor. Confined to the courtyard of the guard, In the palace of a paper king, his predicament was apparently tenuous in every respect. Jerusalem had all but fallen, but her feeble and fretful token ruler, Zedekiah, had incarcerated Jeremiah for telling everyone that this was going to happen. In Jeremiah 32, the Lord was about to hand the city over to the Babylonians, because the people had not listened to Jeremiah and had not repented of their idolatry. Resistance was futile. Hanamel, Jeremiah's cousin, stood before him. Yet the blood that connected them had been turned bad, and not through any fault of Jeremiah. All occupants of Jeremiah's hometown, Anathoth, which included his family, had violently turned against him. They, too, had sought to silence his prophetic warnings, albeit threatening him with death by their hand in Jeremiah 11. With neither the merest flicker of remorse, nor the slightest hint of sympathy for Jeremiah's situation, Hanamel gets straight to the audaciously insensitive point of his visit. By my field, that is at Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. That's Jeremiah 32, verse 8. 
Well, no barge pole could have been long enough to push away this proposal. While the legitimate tribal inheritance of the Benjaminites, this land was already overrun by the soon-to-be captors of Jerusalem. It was a worthless investment in a family farm shot through with dysfunction and choking on the blood of its impending doom. Despite all of that, Jeremiah agreed to the purchase without hesitation or complaint. His reasoning was simple enough. The Lord had told him Hanamel was coming, and the Lord had told him to purchase the field. It may have seemed a senseless transaction as the jaws of hostile occupation closed around the godless treachery of his kith and kin, but its purpose lay far beyond the immediate crisis. Well, faithfully following the tradition of his forebears, Jeremiah weighed out 17 shekels of silver and took the sealed deed of purchase. It was signed by Hanamel and witnessed by the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. A pointed reference to the past indeed, but it was much more a pointed reference to the future. While the witnesses were still assembled, he told Baruch, his scribe, to put the deeds into clay jars so they would last a long time, verse 13. Documents you might know, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, have been preserved for thousands of years by this method. God told Jeremiah to do this because he wanted Jeremiah's purchase to be a lasting testimony in a long history yet to be written. With that, Jeremiah spoke in the presence of the guards who enforced his imprisonment for speaking the word of the Lord. He spoke in the presence of the cousin who threatened his life and then offered him the worst land deal in antiquity. He spoke in the presence of people who abandoned the Lord for idols and dismissed his warnings of judgment. He spoke to an enclave of the variously and knowingly doomed. And he spoke of his investment in what was, from his perspective, an unimaginable hope. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Jeremiah 32 verse 15. He said this, despite having devoted his whole life and ministry to proclaiming that doom was inevitable for a rebellious people. And he said this despite overwhelming evidence of the devastating and unstoppable advance of God's judgment. Although apparently conceding that all was lost, Jeremiah then professed that he bought the field because he trusted that somehow all was not lost. More than that, he proclaimed that the fortunes of the whole land and the people would be restored one day. It might be expressed in terms of material economics, but this is an astonishing statement of faith in the economy of God's grace and sovereignty. When Abraham wanted to bury 
his wife, Sarah, in a cave in the field of Machpelah. He insisted on paying the full price for it, even though he was offered it for free. He weighed out the silver and the field was legally made over to Abraham as his property. It was an investment in a land in which he was an alien and a stranger, Genesis 23 verse 3. Yet it was an investment in a land that the Lord had promised to his future family on oath. Now, there are echoes of this moment in Jeremiah's purchase, particularly as an act of faith in God's promises. There are some marked contrasts too, such as the hostility of Jeremiah's natural allies and the amiability of Abraham's natural enemies. Even with the sure word of the Lord, human weakness falters in the face of tangible threats and burdensome worries. Jeremiah must have been wavering, but his fortitude is nourished by singing a song of praise to the Lord. The beautiful stanzas of Jeremiah 32, 17 to 22, Hallow the Lord of all creation for the delivery of his people from Egypt and the conquest of the promised land. But then, with all due respect and reverence for the Lord, Jeremiah describes his current situation with unguarded consternation. And though the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, you, sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. Verse 25. Jeremiah purchased the field because of his conviction about God's character, notwithstanding complete bewilderment at a basic, practical level. He leaves a heavily implied question hanging. How can this possibly work out? Well, God's answer is that he will be true to his justice in meeting out great judgment on detestable sin, verse 36 but that he will also be true to his faithfulness in gathering his people and bringing them back to the land, verse 37. They will be my people and I will be their God, verse 38. After judging his people, he will regather them and restore their fortunes. Yet how can we reconcile this dramatic change of tone uh, there are echoes of the Song of Moses uh, back in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, which is an anthem of punishment on inevitable idolatry but with a, a promise of restoration in the last line. God had long foretold calamity on his people for rejecting him. Yet, as Moses repeated in his final speech in Deuteronomy 31 verse 8, he had always promised... I will never leave you or forsake you. It's the way God has always been. I will never leave you or forsake you. In the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapters 31 to 33 are a sliver of light in a dark cavern of despair. Chapter 32 is nestled between two oracles of hope, uh, and those are centred on the transformative new covenant. Uh, 
And God says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. That's chapter 31, verse 33. The Lord restates this new covenant hope in his answer to Jeremiah in chapter 32, verse 40, when he says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. God's character is reflected in his covenant, which means that although he will judge their rebellious ways, he will never give up on his people. The new covenant will secure the people of God in his favour forever. So, because of God's covenant judgment, the field in Anathoth is a desolate waste, verse 43. But because of God's covenant promise, it connects with a glorious hope. The Lord's eternal nature, which is encapsulated in his everlasting covenant, means he is ultimately bound to have compassion on his wayward people. God doesn't give up. It's the way he is. It's why he sent his Son to bear our sins on the cross. Jeremiah exemplifies how God's word always sets the agenda, which is another way of saying he is always true to his covenant. Jeremiah's apparently precarious situation has come about because people rejected God's word. But his seemingly dubious investment in the field has come about because he put his faith in God's word. After God's answer, Jeremiah is not possessed with a vision for what he can do with one last field, an outpost reserved from occupation, but with a vision for the future of the whole land. He's not standing on a lone vigil or holding on to a sentimental keepsake, but making a statement of faith in the mercy and sovereign of the Lord. He is not stubbornly clinging on to what everyone else accepts has been lost. He is not trying to perpetuate or keep alive what has been made obsolete by corruption. Rather, he is investing in hope for all people based on God's redeeming nature and covenant fidelity. Well, how does this apply to church revitalization? I wonder if you're working out things already. I'm going to explore that in a few moments. But now we're going to have a quick break and uh, some information about some of the other things on offer from Church Society. You're listening to the Church Society podcast, brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. Church Society supports local churches, ministers and Christians around the country through our publications ministry, books, a quarterly magazine, a theological journal, this podcast and a whole host of teaching resources in video, audio and print format. Our growing team of regional directors are available to support and encourage ministers and local groups We organise a number of regular annual conferences, regional conferences and online webinars. 
We're involved in partnership with many other evangelical organisations in this country and around the world. We have regular prayer meetings and a prayer diary for members. In all of this, we're seeking to build a fellowship of believers who want to see the kingdom grow and the Church of England be reformed for the glory of God and the good of England. We'd love to have you join us. You can join us as a member or an associate and you'll find all the information about how to do that on our new website at churchsociety.org. Coworkers is a new network for complementarian women in Anglican ministry. It's run by Ros Clark, Associate Director of Church Society, under the auspices of the Bishop of Maidstone, Rod Thomas. We'd love all women who are involved in any kind of ministry in the Church of England or any other Anglican denomination to join us. Co-workers will be a network where you can find peer group support, mentoring from older women, occasional online webinars on issues that are of particular relevance to women in ministry. We hope it will be a place for sharing information and resources about training and employment opportunities. Co-workers will include a Facebook group and also a regular email newsletter, as well as occasional online webinars and other events. To find out more about co-workers, please see the Church Society website, churchsociety.org, or search for us on Facebook. Our goal is to help every woman find the information, resources and support that she needs to help her ministry to flourish and the whole church to grow. Well, so much of Jeremiah's witness in that whole tortuous episode of buying a field in Anathoth while he's imprisoned in the court of the guard. So much of that comes to bear on a vision for revitalisation in the Church of England today. You may have already noticed some tantalising parallels. Uh, Firstly, the corrupt state of our denomination. Uh, Anglican evangelicals have serious cause for concern about the Church of England. Though we prize our doctrinal heritage, the increasing revisionism advanced by our ecclesiastical hierarchy is a drain on our integrity. We have confidence on the historical foundations, but not on the current administrations of the Church of England. Some feel the need to leave, some to actively oppose the denomination, some to distance themselves from it, and some simply to act as if it isn't there. Or why would you invest your ministry in a small, failing, Anglican parish church with little or no established Bible teaching and a diminishing, ageing congregation? That is most of the Church of England, which is most of the church buildings in the country. In fact, what most people think of as a church is probably a small failing Anglican parish church with little or no established Bible teaching and a diminishing, ageing congregation. In gospel terms, most parish churches are a desolate wasteland. 
and there is no denying the difficulty of revitalization ministry. By modern growth metrics, it is strategically foolish. With the current state of church assets, the condition of church buildings, and the trend for amalgamation, it is pragmatically difficult. And for individual ministers and their families, it is personally, spiritually, and emotionally hazardous. But it is not just a hope for one parish or one benefice, much that it may be alarmingly similar to a family field in the Badlands of Benjamin. It is a hope for the reform and renewal of the whole denomination. And we don't just put our faith in the way we see things. We look to the nature and character of our covenant Lord. But why the Church of England? The Church of England is not Israel. And it's certainly not the promised land. So why hold out hope for her reform and renewal? Well, to answer this, we need to connect with New Testament teaching on the church. Uh, Through the story of the early church in Acts and the epistles, we learn that gospel fruitfulness requires gospel faithfulness and gospel faithfulness requires gospel partnership. Philippians chapter 1 verse 3 uh, famously speaks of partnership between churches. The same Greek word, kunania, is used to describe the warmth of fellowship in the local church in chapter 2, verse 1, and how we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection for our salvation in chapter 3, verse 10. By God's grace, churches like the Macedonian churches built up this powerful relational capital between them, which strengthened them and advanced the gospel. It gave a forum to share support appoint elders, and also to call them to account. Uh, Reformed Episcopacy, I believe, is simply the faithful application of these New Testament principles. The Church of England, and indeed the wider Anglican Church, is Reformed and Episcopal at its roots. We are Anglicans because we are, first of all, theologically reformed. We believe in justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. But we also believe in episcopacy because we take account for the foundation of inter-ecclesial polity in the New Testament. And it goes back to the covenant roots of God's people through the whole narrative of Scripture. Not only do we cling to the truth of God's word, we also acknowledge that God's word forms a people. And this covenant people is wider than the local church. Well, historical controversy and human innovation have nevertheless significantly marred the Church of England's ecclesiological integrity. It's like an ancient timber-framed house. The framework of the Church of England has become warped and misaligned over centuries. Though it's still standing and giving shelter, it's not altogether true. It is observably unorthodox. Yet still... We believe the Church of England is the best expression of Reformed Episcopacy that we have. The Church of England is the larger part of the Church in England. 
the covenant people of God in the church age in our country. And there is as much a case for revitalising independent churches and not giving up on them for the sake of a gospel hope for the whole nation. Yet for Anglicans, we acknowledge and administer a geographical and formal ecclesial bond between local churches. With the 39 Articles of Faith, a common prayer book, an ordinal, canons, synods, liturgy, bishops, dioceses, deaneries and parishes, we recognise and acknowledge the greater body of the church militant. And as such, it connects more organically with the historic narrative of the Lord's relationship with his covenant people. The Church of England is an authentic outworking of New Testament principles and a profoundly tangible expression of God's covenant people. Rebellious, yes. Subject to judgment, yes. But forsaken by God, never. From this perspective, a compelling reason for continuing commitment to the Church of England is her own history. More specifically, her distinctive witness to the providence of God through the centuries. She has had her triumphs and her tragedies, but God has remained faithful. He is still calling people to faith, service and ministry in the Church of England. A further reason, particularly in respect of revitalisation ministry, is the parish system, which testifies to God's sovereignty over everyone in every place, whole communities in all their diversity. Each is a field worth investing in, however much it might seem like all is lost. The Church of England is corrupt, messy and convoluted, but it stands as a testimony of God's overriding mercy and grace. God has a long history of being faithful to this unfaithful bride. So while we must testify to his judgment on apostasy and urge repentance, who are we to give up on her when God is so graciously faithful? Paul's ministry to the New Testament churches in his letters is, in the most part, a ministry of not giving up on wayward and rebellious churches in partnership. Even though the Galatian church had turned to a different gospel and the Corinthian church members were proud of their immoral excesses, he did not abandon them and start a new family of churches. He invested in them however small or insignificant or hopelessly sinful they were. Jude is very wary of the danger of sin in the church, but still urges us to be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. That's Jude 22 and 23. John's messages to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 urge them and exhort them to holiness and the exercise of discipline. But in the act of writing to them, he's clearly not giving up on them, despite the lamentable state of some of them. 
Notably, he identifies churches together as one in his refrain. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Of course, he goes on to reveal the fulfilment of our glorious hope in Christ, the greatest reason for not giving up. There's a relatively pragmatic rationale for revitalising a small, failing Anglican parish church with little or no established Bible teaching and a diminishing, ageing congregation. In the long term, the Church of England, because of her Episcopal polity and historic roots, gives the best foundation and opportunity for the evangelisation of the nation. Revitalising each parish, one by one, through those slow, slow work, is the most sustainable and effective way of reforming the whole Church of England. With each parish slowly coming back to gospel growth, the denomination is one degree more alive in Christ. And yet, and yet, even when we look at it this way, it is an unimaginable hope. On reflection, revitalisation turns out not to be a pragmatic, but a prophetic ministry. We believe God is faithful and sovereign and doesn't give up on his people. So we invest in failing parishes as an investment in the hope that God will restore the fortunes of his people. And this, in this instance, his people is represented by the denomination, by the Church of England. We're investing in a desolate wasteland, but we are connecting with a glorious hope. Well, there's much more to say about this topic. And in the next webinar on Wednesday the 10th of November at 1pm, we'll be thinking through revitalisation as mission. To advance the gospel in many places, there is no better way than revitalisation. And in some cases, there is no other way. But how should we go about it when we are thinking about it missionally? As before, we will have some interviews with special guests, this time from rural benefices to share their experience and wisdom. There will also be time for discussion and breakout rooms uh, based on regions. So why not come and join us Wednesday the 10th of November at one o'clock. More information and booking details are in the notes below or on the Church Society website. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm-hmm.